Good morning, and it's great to be in God's house together, worshiping Him in one... Uh, sad that for a lot of families, about the only time they ever spend eating a meal together around the table is on a special occasion. You know, with the advent of fast food and TV dinners and as busy as families have gotten, sadly the family meal has really fallen by the wayside. And when we do get together, and I'm just as bad about this as anybody, we want to eat in front of the TV. Right? We've got a football game we want to watch or something. We've got things we want to watch, but... Research has showed us that even if just two or three times a week a family can sit around the dinner table to eat together, it drastically reduces the kind of high-risk behaviors that many kids and teens get in trouble with. It's just such a way to strengthen a family. It's a way for us to connect with the people we love in a very powerful and unique way. Uh, And it's a way when you sit down and you break bread with someone, you can't help but begin to recognize the image of God within them. It just strengthens within us this concept of of who they are and that they matter as somebody created by God. And so we need to really take better advantage of this. And we need to do more to spend time together. That's one reason why I'm a big fan of our Wednesday Night Supper. Not only is it delicious food, but it's great fellowship. Just to be able to see one another, to be able to to, to sit at a table with people or at least stop by and, and talk and visit with folks while we eat on Wednesdays. I hope that you'll make it a priority to try to be a part of that with us. And so it shouldn't surprise us that throughout the Bible we find God's people breaking bread together. And we see God showing up at tables throughout Scripture and particularly in the spiritual lives of God's people both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find central to that a table. Whether it's the Passover table in the Old Testament or the Lord's Supper table in the New Testament. In Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus many times at tables. He liked to go to parties. He liked to eat with even tax collectors and sinners. Jesus would break bread. And particularly in this last week of Jesus' life, we see him go into the temple and overturn some tables. The tables of the money changers. Tables that represent corruption and and exclusivity and, and, and worldliness. And he overturns those tables. But then we see him sitting at a table in the home of Simon the leper. And he's at that table with his friends, and they're eating together. An uninvited woman comes in with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she interrupts the meal. But Jesus welcomes this unexpected guest, this outsider. He welcomes her to his table. And then here today, what we look at today, in the upper room, Jesus sits at the Passover table, the Seder meal. And this is a table that represents covenant. It represents sacrifice. And notice that Jesus, no matter what table he sat at, he shared his table with friends and enemies. With people who were insiders and people who were outsiders. Everyone and anyone was always welcome at the Lord's table. So let's look at Matthew, at Mark sorry, chapter 14. I'm going to begin in verse 12 and just read through verse 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. 
So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, last week, and two weeks ago, I guess two weeks ago, in the message, we saw a lot of preparation. The religious elite were preparing their plot to have Jesus arrested. The woman with the alabaster jar was preparing Jesus' body for his burial. Judas was preparing to betray our Lord. But here in verse 12, we see that Jesus was also making preparations. He and his disciples were preparing to celebrate the Passover meal, and Jesus would use that meal to prepare them for what was about to happen. Now, as Ben explained, the Passover, or the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, was, a, was the most sacred of all the Jewish feasts and festivals. And it was a celebration that God commanded His people to observe every year to remind them of what He did at the very birth of their nation. As He brought them forth from slavery in Egypt and delivered them from the death angel. You remember that final plague that came on Egypt was the death of every firstborn son. And if they would take a one-year-old spotless male lamb and sacrifice that lamb and put its blood on the lintel and the doorposts, then the death angel would see it and would pass over them and spare their lives. And it was by this final act that God ultimately delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so God commanded all generations of His people to commemorate this act of salvation and deliverance, to remember this every year, through this annual feast. And so as any good Jewish rabbi would do, Jesus was making plans to celebrate that meal with his followers. But Jesus was a wanted man at this point. The Sanhedrin was looking for a way to arrest him. So to be associated with Jesus was risky. To be in his presence, dangerous, to harbor Jesus could be deadly. So under these circumstances, who in the world would risk giving Jesus a room to celebrate Passover with? Where would they go? And I love to think about how Jesus' story, his life on earth, began with an upper room. You know, we read the the story of Jesus' birth, and it talks about there was no room in the inn. When we read that, we think of like a Hampton Inn, right, or a Holiday Inn Express. But the inn in New Testament times, that really just meant a guest room. So Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, this bustling city full of people because they were all having to go to their their hometowns for this tax and and census. 
And, and they get there and there's not even a spare room. You know, some of us in our homes maybe have a spare room. That's what that meant. And the, the, the homes of that time were typically two-story. You'd have an upper story because a lot of these houses were built on hillsides. So you'd have kind of this upper story where the family would live. That's where the guest room would be. And then beneath it was sort of the cooking living space and where the animals would be kept at night. And that maybe is even the stable that Jesus stayed at was literally that, that, uh, that basement level a garage, kind of like think about Jesus being born in a garage where, where the, the guest room was upstairs. So when Jesus was born, there was an upper room that there was no room for Jesus in. And here we see Jesus once again coming to the end of his life and he needs a place to stay in another bus, busy city, in another bustling season. And would anyone spare Jesus' room at such a high cost? Well, as we look at verses 14 through 16, we see the answer is yes. And we see that once again, an anonymous person has given to Jesus their arm. Remember the woman with the alabaster jar? We don't know her name. All we know her by is her actions. And the same thing here. We don't know these people's names, but we know them by their actions. We know them by the worth that they placed on Jesus. We know them by the the sacrifice that they were willing to make. They were willing to risk their reputation their livelihood, their home, maybe even their lives to give Jesus room. Now, we know that it was a a wealthy family because they had an upper room large enough to accommodate at least 13 people. And it was furnished. It was already furnished for all of these people. And they had servants bustling about Jerusalem. Now, some scholars, and I kind of like to think this, think that this was actually Mark's family, John Mark, that, that this was his parents' home. And we know that they were related to Barnabas, Remember the book of Acts, Barnabas was wealthy, and so uh, the, the theory is that maybe this was even Mark's family. But we don't know for certain. And whoever it was, we know they had a lot to lose. And we know that like the woman with the alabaster jar, they loved Jesus with all that they had. When I, when I think about that, it makes me ask myself, am, am I willing to risk my all for Jesus? Am I willing to love Jesus with all that I have? Will I give Him room in my life and harbor Him in a dark world that is just as hostile to Him and His message as the Sanhedrin were? Will we invite Jesus into our hearts, into our workplaces, and into our classrooms, and into our weekend activities? Is Jesus worth us risking and giving all of our life to Him? That's the question that each of us have to ask ourselves. The owner of this house said, yes, Jesus is worth risking it all for. They had made prearrangements with Jesus to, to, to have him up there. And I, I kind of like this, you know, part of the story, you know, it almost makes me think like James Bond or something, you know, like Jesus is giving them like this code, you know, you go into town, watch for the man with the water jar and follow him to, you know, it's kind of like, you know, and here's the secret passcode. So Jesus has sort of set this up in advance, which tells us that Jesus was intentional about this most sacred moment in history. He wasn't winging it. Jesus had set all this up and had planned it just like he did with the donkey, you know, that he rode on into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He had been planning this, this event that's about to unfold, that's been in the works for all of eternity. What a moment. And to think about these anonymous people and how their life, their story was tied up with this this hinge moment for history. 
And again, if you're like me, you may think, well, my life doesn't feel that significant. You know, I don't feel like my life has any kind of a cosmic impact like, like this did. But you'd be wrong. You see, your story is a part of God's redemptive story. Your day-to-day affairs do matter. And if that's true, how are you preparing your life for Jesus? How do you make preparation for Jesus? How are you setting the table for Jesus? Now, do you prepare yourself every morning and anticipate every morning how you're going to encounter God throughout the day? Do you pray in the morning and and prepare your heart and mind to see and hear God speak, to, to be available for God to use throughout the day? How do you prepare your heart and mind to come on Sunday morning to study God's Word and to worship? What do you do on Saturday? What do you do throughout the week to prepare yourself for this moment? Jesus cared enough to plan ahead and prepare. We should too. The table is set. But secondly, we see that your seat is saved. Your seat and mine. We have a seat at the table. Now, when you look at verse 17, it says, When evening came, and we have to remember that Jews, they marked their days from sundown to sundown. So really, at this meal, they're beginning Good Friday. By the next sundown, Jesus will be dead and buried. The disciples will be hiding, scattered, and scared. And Judas, the would-be traitor, will be dead. Now, when we look at verse 18, we see that Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do the day he called Judas to be a follower. It was in fulfillment of prophecy that Judas the betrayer would break bread at the table of fellowship and worship with Jesus. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This was a messianic prophecy of how Jesus would, how the the events of his death would be set in motion. As I said earlier, Jesus always welcomed anyone and everyone to his table. He didn't turn anybody away, even one he knew would betray him. Even one he knew would deny him. Even those he knew would abandon him and run away and hide to save themselves. They were welcome. Jesus' love and grace isn't dependent on our faithfulness and goodness, but on His. Amen? Isn't that good news? We are saved by His grace, not our good works or our good intentions or anything else about us. And that's good news because haven't we all in one way or another betrayed Jesus? Denied Jesus? Abandoned Jesus at times? Maybe it's those moments in our life when... We feel like that Jesus is just asking too much of us. Maybe it's those moments when family or friends or employers or co-workers kind of pressure us to do things the world's ways. Maybe it's those times in our life when the riches of this world seem more appealing to us than the riches of heaven. At those times, aren't we just as likely to deny and abandon and betray Jesus as Judas or Simon Peter, or Andrew, and James, and John, or any of the others. Praise God as we sang, His mercies are new every morning. Every morning He gives us a fresh page. Though we forsake Him, He will never forsake us. Look at verse 21. 
Jesus says, for the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him had he not been born. Yes, God's mercies are new. Yes, God's grace is real. But we also will be held responsible for the consequences of our choices and our behaviors. God doesn't promise to spare us from the consequences of our choices in this life. He will spare us from judgment in the life to come. You know, even though these events have been prophesied, even though this was something that had to happen, God ordered these events of Jesus' death and resurrection, but each person was responsible for their actions. Judas was not some puppet who was predestined against his will to deny Jesus. He made a choice. And nowhere in the Gospels is Judas ever given a pass for his choice. He's held accountable for it. And listen, this is... This is something that our society needs to hear today loud and clear. It doesn't matter what our circumstances. It doesn't matter the injustices done against us. It doesn't matter the opportunities maybe we've been denied. It doesn't matter what anybody has said about us or done to us. God will hold each and every one of us responsible for our choices. We can't be responsible for how other people treat us, but we can be responsible for how we respond. And we will especially be held responsible for what we do with Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? Do you accept Him? Do you reject Him? Are you ashamed of Him? Or do you bear His name proudly? Jesus said in John chapter 3, beginning of verse 16, He said, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him, whoever, will not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Where do you stand? What have you done with Jesus? Listen, He has saved a seat for you at His table. He's extended to you the invitation. All you must do is receive it in faith and repentance. What will you do with Jesus? He saved you a seat at His table. And then finally we see that the meal is served. Now at this Passover table in particular, Jesus both commemorates the old, looking back on the Exodus, but Jesus is also anticipating something new. This is no ordinary Passover meal. Jesus... I can just sit back and just let somebody else preach. How's that? That just sounds great. That's okay. It happens. Um, so, so Jesus is reinterpreting what this Passover Seder meal is all about. And he uses this meal to help his followers with a few things. First of all, to understand his death. He wants us to understand what his death is all about. Now, this meal was both a celebration, but it was also a fulfillment. I love how uh, N.T. Wright, he's a New Testament scholar, he writes this, When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. He gave them a meal. Jesus used the Passover meal. He reinterpreted it to not just point back to the Exodus, but to point forward to the cross. You see, Jesus 
is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. And what Jesus is going to do on the cross is the new Exodus. If you remember when we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and Jesus was revealed in all of His radiant glory, it says that they were discussing, the three of them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, were discussing what was about to happen in Jerusalem. His departure is what it says in the English. Remember I said that the Greek word is exodos. His exodus. Moses was talking with Jesus about his exodus. What Jesus would do on the cross would be to part the sea of sin that separates us from a holy God. The temple veil will be torn in two, opening up God's presence to whosoever will that may come. Whoever believes, whoever comes in repentance and faith. We are liberated. We are set free from bondage to sin through what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus explains this in verse 24, that His death would be a new Passover sacrifice. It would provide a new covenant. It would create a new community. Let's think about each of those briefly. First of all, we need to understand His death as a new sacrifice. Jesus took that cup and said, This is My blood of the covenant. Now, to understand the significance of that, we've got to go back to when Moses instituted the covenant with Israel. They're there at Mount Sinai. They've received the Ten Commandments and the law. God has said, I want you to be my covenant people. I will be your God. And there's a ceremony by which the people of Israel will agree and enter into this covenant. And Moses sacrifices a bull. And look what it says in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 6. Moses took half of the blood put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses took the blood of bulls and began the Old Covenant. Jesus instituted the New Covenant with His own blood. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Just as the blood of those animals sealed the covenant relationship with God's people Israel, so the blood of Jesus seals God's covenant relationship with us, the church, with all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. His death is a new and the final sacrifice for our sins. Secondly, we understand His death provides a new covenant. Particularly, Luke records Jesus as saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, why does there have to be a new covenant? Well, let's look back at Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. The Lord declares, Look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, what was wrong with the Old Covenant? The problem with the Old Covenant 
was us. It was the people. It was our sinful, broken, hard hearts. Because of their sinful hearts, they kept breaking God's covenant. Idolatry, immorality, injustice, these things just spring from the human heart because our hearts are broken. We needed a new heart. We needed a transformed heart. So look at Exodus, I'm sorry, Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone, your hard heart, and I will give you a soft heart, a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. See, this new covenant is superior to the old. In many ways, for one, rather than the law being written on stone, it's written on our hearts. The new covenant doesn't concern itself with external rituals, but inner spiritual transformation. Obedience is no longer a condition for entering the covenant. It's the result of entering the covenant. It's because we belong to Jesus that He enables us and gives us the desire to live obedient lives him. And no longer would our relationship with God be mediated by flawed, sinful human priests who have to make atonement for their own sins. No, our relationship with God is now mediated through the flawless, high and holy priest, Jesus Christ Himself, who once for all time laid down His life to make atonement for our sins. Jesus' death provides a new covenant, a better covenant, A covenant that's not dependent upon us, but fully dependent upon Him. And third, His death creates a new community. He says that the blood of the covenant was poured out for many. See, this new covenant is inclusive rather than exclusive. Jesus' blood was poured out for many. Maybe you remember Mark 10, 45, Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now that word many means the multitudes. It means not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Not just men, but women. Not just adults, but children. Not just the rich, but poor. Not just the religious, but the sinful. His blood is poured out for all. For God so loved the whole world that whoever believes will have eternal life. You don't have to be a part of a certain group. You don't have to have some sort of a certain immutable characteristic in your life. You only have to receive this great gift of grace through faith and repentance. And you can have a seat at Jesus' table. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Jesus used this Seder table to help His followers understand the meaning and the power of His death. But more than that, more than just helping us understand it, He uses it to help enable us to live it. So not only does He use it to help us to understand His death, but also to learn to live together in that new community. How do we live together in this new community of faith? Well, in John's Gospel, you may remember before they actually sit down for this meal, Jesus does something radical. He shocks His disciples by washing their feet. An act of utter humiliation. I mean, that's what the the lowest slave in the household, that's what they did. And Jesus washed their feet and gave them a new command. He said in John 13, He said, Love one another as I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. There's a reason why sometimes we refer to the Lord's Supper as communion, because it is an act of community. We come together around this table and enter into this covenant community together. It reminds us that by Jesus' sacrifice of His blood and His body, we are bound to God and one another by this new covenant. We're called. We're commanded to love one another, to encourage one another, to forgive one another, to be patient with one another, to consider others' needs before our own. To consider one another more important than ourselves. To serve one another. We are called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Listen, you can't fulfill any of those commands apart from the church. Now there are Christians that say, well, I can be a Christian without going to church. I don't need the church. You know, they're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Well, if by that you mean we're not perfect, amen, we're not. We're here by God's grace, not our goodness. You can't be a good Christian apart from the church because how are you going to love one another, forgive one another, bear each other's burdens, be patient with one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds by yourself? You can't do it. This Lord's Supper table reminds us Jesus didn't just die to save individual souls. He died to save a community. He died for the church. We are His bride. And we must fulfill His commands. Listen, the greatest commands, the Great Commission, they can only be done in community. And they are the one thing. It doesn't matter what differences we may have. We all have different, you know, little aspects of our doctrines and theology. We have different opinions about how church is supposed to work. I mean, you put 20 Baptists in a room, you've got 30 opinions, right? I mean, it's... We all have so many differences, but we can unite as one around this table around the Great Commission and the Great Commandments, because that is why we're here. And finally, at the table, Jesus prepares His followers to eagerly eagerly anticipate His return. He says that He won't drink the fruit of the vine until He comes to usher in the kingdom of God and make all things new. Now, the traditional toast, if you will, I guess, the thing that you say in a Seder meal as you drink the last cup, what they would do is they would say... Uh, this year in Jerusalem, next year in the kingdom. That's what, they would, that's what they would say. Now, after A.D. 70, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and the Jewish people for nearly the next 2,000 years were scattered away from Jerusalem, they would just say, next year in Jerusalem. That was their hope. Of course, today, Jews can celebrate a Passover in Jerusalem. But Jesus interpreted the meal in light of what was about to happen. It wasn't just a memorial of God's past saving acts. It was an anticipation of God's future saving acts, both through the cross and through His ultimate return. Now, for us, the Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember the past, right? What to say on the front of that table? What did Ben mention? We do this in remembrance of Him, right? We celebrate this in remembrance of what Jesus has done, but we also partake of this in anticipation of what Jesus will still do. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what has happened, until He comes. What is yet to happen. This table 
points us to a future table. One that Jesus Himself is still preparing for us today. It's the Messianic table written about in Isaiah 25 that says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. We will someday celebrate this wedding feast of the Lamb. We will someday celebrate at this table in glory. As Revelation 19.9 says, The angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Guess what? You've been invited to that supper. You've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. To dine at His heavenly table where death's shroud has been swallowed up forever. Where every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more sin and no more disgrace. It's the table of salvation, eternal life, peace, and joy. Will you be at that table? See, before you can take a seat at that heavenly table, you've got to take a seat at the table the Lord prepared 2,000 years ago. And I'm not, I'm not talking about this Lord's Supper table. I'm talking about the table of God's grace. I'm talking about the table of forgiveness and eternal life. I'm talking about the table of being a part of a new covenant community with God's family. Will you come to that table? Will you sit and dine with Jesus? Will you partake of His sacrifice for you? Listen, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never taken the sin and brokenness in your life and just surrendered it to Him and embraced His forgiveness and grace and asked Him to live in you and enable you to follow Him and to obey His commands, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I pray you would do that right now. Right now, you can't really come to this table if you've not come in grace and faith to Jesus Christ for salvation. If that's you today, if you have any question about that whatsoever, where you stand with God, will you someday find yourself at that heavenly table? I implore you as we sing in a moment to come and speak with me. Together we can make sure that you know you belong to Jesus. And this this song we're going to sing, let this be a preparation time for all of us. Let's prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate this table together. If God is speaking anything to you, to unite with this church, to surrender to His call to Christian service and ministry, to rededicate your life to Him, whatever it may be, this altar is open, I'll be standing here to receive you. Let's prepare our hearts for Him. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your grace and for Your mercy. We're thankful that You do not treat us as our sins deserve, but through the sacrifice of Christ, You give us forgiveness and eternal life if we will just receive it. Lord, if there's anybody here today that's not done that, I pray they would come today and receive You by faith, that they may find themselves at Your table. Father, prepare all of our hearts and minds for this commemoration. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.